Before we move into the uh, text for exposition this morning, um, <clears throat> it was brought to my attention that I left a few loose ends hanging last week, and now I'm going to try to tie them together. Um, I do want you to know that I want you to feel free to do that. If you see that I may have left loose ends, please do approach me about it because the goal here with what we do is we're wanting to understand what God is saying to his church and the men that stand behind this stand are not perfect and infallible and sometimes we miss things. So it's okay. If you, uh, if you uh, notice that uh, I or even Jason misses something, approach us about it. It's, it's okay. Um, so, that being said, last week I talked about the fact that salvation is by God's grace alone through faith alone, which is itself the gift of God rather than being something we conjure up in ourselves. Okay, That was the main crux of what we were talking about. I was making the point that prior to regeneration, we are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sin and by nature children of wrath. And in accordance with our sin nature, our minds are set on the flesh and hostile to God and therefore fully incapable of submitting to his law or pleasing him at all. And in that context, I said we are not saved because we make a decision for Christ. Okay? I want to add clarity to that statement now. I stand by what I said last week. We are not saved by making a decision for Christ. However, those who are saved do willingly choose to follow Christ. The reason for that is something else we covered last week. God makes us alive and creates us anew in Christ. That is to say in the ordo salutis or the order of salvation, regeneration precedes faith. By his Holy Spirit, God births us from above, giving us a renewed will with holy affections, causing us to be willing and able to believe. Or as it is stated in the 1689 Baptist Confession, God takes away their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. He renews their wills and by his almighty power turns them to good and effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. Yet he does all this in such a way that they come completely freely since they are made willing by his grace. So I hope that clears things up a bit. Um, we do not deny that man has a true will by which he chooses and acts. We are not puppets on a string as the caricature of the doctrines of grace often goes. It is not a proper representation of what we teach. Um, it's, it's just that apart from God's regenerating work, man's will is hopelessly enslaved to sin. Again, as the confession states, when God converts sinners and transforms them into the state of grace, he frees them from their natural bondage to sin and by his grace alone enables them to will and to do freely what is spiritually good. Or as the Apostle John uh, more succinctly states it, we love him because he first loved us. Okay. With that said, now... Please turn with me in your Bibles back to Ephesians chapter 2. And we are going to be considering uh, verses 11 through 22 this morning. 
Again, we saw last week that God takes spiritually dead sinners and by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, he raises them from spiritual death to spiritual life so that we who once walked in trespasses and sins would rather walk in good works unto the glory of God. With that in mind, Paul says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven above, again we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus and we thank you for your word. We thank you we have your word and we have it in our language and it's so easily and readily accessible to us. Um, perhaps that's something we take for granted because it's not really been the case for the vast majority of church history. So, Lord, help us to take full advantage of that blessing, um, to study your word and to live by your word. And now, Lord, I pray that you would help me to exposit your word and I pray that you would help me to do so rightly. And I pray that this would be edifying to your saints and most of all glorifying to your great name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Alright, so it starts yeah. off, Therefore, or as a result of you being new creatures in Christ Jesus, who walk in good works unto the glory of God, as a result of this, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. We know the Ephesian church was composed of Jews and Gentiles. There were both in this church. In Acts 19, we read about the founding of the Ephesian church. Um, as was his custom, Paul entered the Ephesian synagogue first and taught the Jews for three months. But when several opponents of Christ arose in the synagogue, Paul left and took with him those who had become disciples of Christ. And scripture says Paul was reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Here Paul is directly addressing the Gentile believers at Ephesus. And by extension, most if not all of us in this room, since we also are Gentiles according to the flesh. As he addresses the Gentiles, he makes this interesting distinction. He says, Gentiles in the flesh 
called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. So the people he is addressing are Gentiles in the flesh and called uncircumcised by Jews who are circumcised in the flesh. I hope this point will come out as we move through the text, but the key thing to understand at this point is that there is a very real distinction that is being made between Jew and Gentile. But the distinction is quite clearly outward, or we might say fleshly. Okay? As we move through, I think that's going to become much clearer. But right there, you kind of have a, a foretaste, I guess. This, this is a fleshly distinction. As Paul wrote to the Romans, true circumcision is outward and physical. Or excuse me, it's not outward and physical, but a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. But again, speaking to the Gentile believers, Paul says, remember that you were at that time, that is prior to your regeneration, at that time prior to when you were born again, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In other words, he wants the Gentile believers to remember they were separated from Christ. We have seen the theme repeated over and over again to this point that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. All these blessings we have in Christ, because of Christ. Paul is telling the Gentiles to remember back to a time when they were separated from Christ and thus all the blessings that are ours in him. And since, uh, since they were separated from Christ, who is the king, they would have been separated from Christ's kingdom as well. That is the commonwealth of Israel. And since they were separated from the commonwealth of Israel, they would have been uh, they would have not been party to the covenants of promise which were made with Israel through the patriarchs. Primarily, this would be those covenants made with or through Abraham, Moses, and David. Of course, all of these pointing to the coming of Christ. And since they were cut off from Christ, his kingdom, and the covenants of promise, they had no hope and were without God in the world. They were like us. They were like us before we were saved and like the world around us that still lies in unbelief now. Think about how life was for you before you came to saving faith. You did not know the sweetness of Christ. I did not know the sweetness of Christ. You did not know the surpassing joy of being in fellowship with him and consequently of being in fellowship with his people. Maybe you grew up in the church, but you didn't really appreciate it. Or maybe you didn't grow up in the church. You didn't even know that there was something to appreciate. Maybe you even thought that the church was full of hypocrites. Have you ever heard that one? You did not have the hope that comes from being in covenant with Christ and knowing that he will fulfill what he has promised to you. Our souls do not find rest apart from Christ. That's why we teach here that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. We are hopeless and void of any true purpose for ourselves beyond the satisfaction of the passions of our flesh apart from Christ. But the thing about the flesh 
is that it's never ultimately satisfied. Try this. Eat a meal and then give it some time. Your flesh will get hungry again. Or drink some water and then give it some time. Your flesh will be thirsty again. Christ says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. As Augustine of Hippo is quoted as saying, there is a God-shaped vacuum in every man that only Christ can fill. That's why the unbelieving world around us is so hopeless and depressed. I don't think it's any secret that pharmaceutical companies are doing very well sending out depression meds. Um, levels of depression are rising in our society. It's no secret. I'm sure that all of us have been touched by it in some way. Well, there's a reason for that. That is because apart from Christ, we are without hope. Consequently, along with, or I should say coincidentally, along with this rise in depression and the need for depression meds, um, there's also an increasing unbelief an increasing secularization of our society. This is not a coincidence. In fact, this is what Scripture teaches. Those who are outside of Christ are still alienated from God. They have no reason for hope. In his commentary on this passage, John Stott writes, we were alienated from God and from his people. Worse, there was in our hearts the enmity to which Paul refers later, so that we rebelled against the authority of God and knew little or nothing of true human community. It is not the same in today's world without Christ. Men still build walls of partition and division like the terrible Berlin Wall, or erect invisible curtains of iron or bamboo or construct Barriers of race, color, caste, tribe, or class. Divisiveness is a constant characteristic of every community without Christ. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that is Gentile believers, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Again, just as we saw in the first ten verses last week, first 10 verses of this chapter, we see uh, a before and an after contrast. In our fallen state, we were dead in trespasses and sins. But after God takes action to save us, we are alive together with Christ and new creatures in him who walk in the good works with uh, which he has prepared for us. Likewise, in our fallen state, we were alienated from God, Christ, Israel, and the covenants of promise, and therefore devoid of hope. But when God takes action to save us by putting forward Christ as a sacrifice for sins, we are brought near, such that we become adopted sons of God, brothers with Christ, citizens of the commonwealth of Israel, and heirs of the covenants of promise. We are called into the immeasurable hope that is in Christ. We are called into being um, heirs of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What more hope could we hope for? <clears throat> for he himself is our peace. 
that phrase we could spend a lot of time on. Um, and I think we could rightly say that this phrase summarizes the entire epistle. Christ brings peace between God and man. He brings peace between Jew and Gentile. He brings peace between husband and wife. He brings peace between parents and children. And he even brings peace between masters and slaves. Christ brings peace and unity within his church. And in fact, all things in heaven and on earth find their unity in him. And these are all themes we see put forward just in this one epistle alone. Rightly does Isaiah refer to him as being, among other things, the Prince of Peace. We hear that quoted a lot this time of year, that verse in Isaiah. He's the Prince of Peace. But think about what that actually means. All of these things we just went through. That's not just a nice little slogan where we just, okay, you know, we're a peacenik, you know, we don't want any kind of war. No, it's, it's much, much broader than that. Again, as Paul writes to the Colossians, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Never forget this grace, uh, this great peace we have in Christ came at the greatest cost by the blood of his cross. The Son of God murdered on our behalf to make peace. So, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The specific reference here is to the division between Jew and Gentile. Okay, Herod's temple was still standing at the time Paul wrote this epistle. You need to keep that in mind as you read it. The temple was still standing, and there was a literal separation wall that surrounded it. In his description of the temple, the ancient Jewish historian Flavius Josephus writes, Thus was the first enclosure, in the midst of which, and not far from it, was a second, to be gone up to by a few steps. This was encompassed by a stone wall for partition, with an inscription which forbade any foreigner, read there any Gentile, to go in under pain of death. Go in as a Gentile, they will kill you. So it's not, it's more than just no trespassing. It's no trespassing on pain of death. Do you understand this means the wall separated Gentiles both from God, who would be sought in the temple, and the Jews who were permitted to enter into his presence there. Separated from God, separated from the commonwealth of Israel by this wall of hostility. Even while the physical wall is still standing, Paul makes the point that Christ breaks down the wall of hostility and makes the two, Gentile and Jew, into one people who themselves have access to God through him. Not through the, uh, the old means of, okay, well, we send the high priest in once a year and he offers... No, our great high priest gives us instant access to God now. Christ has broken down the wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That is, the ceremonial law, which served as a dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, is fulfilled and abolished in Christ. 
there is a very similar passage that I think makes the point more clearly because there is debate over what this phrase, uh, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. There are some who think that this is the entire Old Testament law, or maybe it's a reference to uh, uh, the Old Testament law as a covenant of works for life. Now, we do think Christ fulfilled all those things. Uh, I'm not denying that. But I think in this passage, it's actually just referring to the ceremonial law, which separates Jew and Gentile. And I think that's made uh, more clear uh, in Colossians, which is a very similar, almost parallel um, text. In Colossians, Paul writes, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then with that as the context, he goes on to say to the Gentile believers at Colossae, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In our passage in Ephesians, he makes a point to say that they're Jews circumcised with hands. Here in Colossians, he's saying, You Gentile believers were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on aestheticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. So we are not, we Gentile believers, and in fact even Jewish believers, are no longer bound by the... Um, ceremonial law of the Old Testament. That was the shadow, and it was appropriate at that time that it be done, but we now partake of the substance, which is Christ. So you could say we keep the ceremonial law, but we keep it differently because we keep it by partaking of the substance, Christ. We have no need of doing the outward rituals anymore. We take part of the inward substance. So the reason for Christ breaking down the wall of hostility and abolishing the Jewish ceremonial law was that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see, it is not just Gentiles who benefit from Christ. He makes believing Jews and Gentiles one people by reconciling us to each other. He brings us together into one body, and we know from other places in Scripture, every part of the body needs every other part of the body for the body to function properly. We need each other and are blessed to have each other. And not only that, Christ reconciles both 
Jews and Gentiles to God. Which is why Paul says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Here again we see that our salvation is a Trinitarian work. We have access to the Father through Christ who reconciles us to God. And in the Spirit we obtain this access. It is the Spirit who regenerates us and himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And, is, uh, and it is the Spirit himself who intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words when we do not know what to pray for as we ought. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Or to put it another way, despite that we are Gentiles according to the flesh, we are true spiritual Jews. As we already have seen elsewhere in Scripture, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, and in in him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You might say that we are Gentile Israelites, or if you want to be even more paradoxical, we're Gentile Jews. Um, however you want to label us, we who were once aliens are now citizens of Christ's kingdom and members of God's household. He's brought us near. He's described us as you who were once far off. Which means we're not far off anymore. We are near now. And I know I've used this J.I. Packer quote a good bit lately, but I cannot emphasize the point he made enough when he said adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. He doesn't simply allow us entrance into his kingdom as his subjects. Such is a glorious truth that he does do that. But no, he goes further than that. He allows us to become members of the family. Become part of the household of God. This household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The foundation of the building is the apostles and prophets with the cornerstone as Christ. There are two ways of understanding this, or I should say at least two ways. One interpretation is that the foundation is the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. I think this makes perfect sense when you consider the apostles pointed back to the earthly ministry of Christ and the prophets pointed forward to the earthly ministry of Christ. The doctrine of the prophets and the doctrine of the apostles meets together at the cornerstone who is Christ himself. However, another interpretation is that this is speaking of the apostles and New Testament prophets. This also makes sense as Paul goes on to talk about Christ giving gifts, particularly teaching gifts, 
to his church. And the first two offices on that list are apostles and prophets in that order. And for that reason, I think this is truly what Paul had in view here. Otherwise, it seems to me that he would have listed the prophets first. But he doesn't do that. Regardless, the point Paul is making is the same. The foundation is the doctrine of Christ, which is taught by his apostles and prophets, with he himself being the cornerstone that gives integrity and stability to the building. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now again, Herod's temple was still standing when Paul wrote this. So think about the audacity of the claim he is making. Paul was essentially following Jesus and declaring that the Jews' house was left to them desolate. Jesus left and he said, essentially, you guys are done for. Um, the Old Testament system that you guys hold so dear, it is done for. I am about to fulfill all things and this, your house will be obsolete and eventually torn down and destroyed. And in fact, we know it was. But at the time Paul was writing this, it was still standing. Um, even though it had become obsolete along with the rest of the ceremonial aspects of the law. In addition, Ephesus was known in part for its temple to the pagan goddess Diana. In fact, the temple to Diana is one of the so-called seven wonders of the ancient world. We read in Acts 19 of a riot that started during Paul's time in Ephesus over fears about the Christians drawing people away from their goddess and her temple. So Ephesus itself is known for its pagan temple. With those things in mind, again, Stott writes this, two temples, one pagan and the other Jewish, each designed by its devotees as a divine residence but both empty of the living God. For now there is a new temple, a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. In Christ, God builds his eschatological, or his last things, temple, where he dwells with his people forever. That's why Paul, again with a Trinitarian formulation, says in Christ you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is a temple without walls and made without hands. It is not confined to one geographical location and it is ever being built to the end of the age as more and more of the elect are brought to saving faith. Uh, I believe it was Peter who says we are living stones being built together in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> we know Christ has promised he will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He will continue to build this holy temple until the temple is completed. So, in closing, here are a few key takeaways from this passage. For the note takers, I'm saying point, point, point. Point one. It's good to remember where you came from. Remembering what we were before God graciously saved us helps us maintain a right view of the gloriousness 
of His grace and also helps us remain grounded. Point number two. Christ reconciles God and man by the blood of His cross. Point number three. Christ reconciles man with man, particularly Jews and Gentiles, by the blood of his cross. Point number four. Gentiles have been made citizens of the commonwealth of Israel. Likewise, not all Israel is Israel. Not all of Abraham's physical descendants are his true children. Jesus made this point um, in a conversation with the Jews we have recorded in John 8, where he says, if you were Abraham's children, you would have rejoiced to see my day. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. He says, no, you are not the sons of God. You are not the sons of Abraham. You are the sons of your father, the devil. So not all Israel is Israel. Paul writes, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And again, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So there are not two distinct peoples of God, Israel and the church, as some claim. The clear teaching of Scripture is that Christ breaks down the wall of separation the wall of hostility, and creates in himself one new man in place of the two. In terms of being near to God, physical descent, race, ethnicity, or whatever other external feature you want to consider is irrelevant. The new covenant conception of Israel includes all those who savingly believe in Jesus Christ without reference to any external factors whatsoever. Or to put it another way, eschatological Israel is none other than the New Testament church bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. Point number five. Eschatological Israel is also the eschatological temple of God, meaning he dwells in and amongst his people, the church, forever. Point number six. This temple is built upon a doctrinal foundation with Christ being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure finds its integrity. In other words, it is a temple, a holy temple, built on the truth of Jesus Christ. All of that truth, of course, pointing to Christ, uh, finding its ultimate fulfillment in Christ bodily. And then finally, point number seven. Every bit of this stuff that we've gone over up to this point is a Trinitarian work. Through Christ, both Jew and Gentile are reconciled to God and have access in one spirit to the Father. And in Christ, we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. These are some glorious truths. God truly is, even now, reconciling all things together, things in heaven, things on earth, through Christ. And so, may we offer our praises to the triune God who blesses us with all these spiritual blessings in Christ.
Father, again, we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus, and we thank you for all of the things we've talked about this morning. And Lord, I'm sure there's much more that could be said, and I pray that you would help us to continue to look at this passage and think about this passage, and that you would reveal those things to us also. We pray now that you would be with us as we partake of the supper. We thank you for this visible picture of the gospel, um, the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. We can become free. We can become the adopted sons of God. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.